Everyone's favourite part of the week. It's this week at Windsor. Dr. J back once again. Good afternoon. Finally living up to our name. Two in a row. Yeah. Will they get out on time? We shall see. <laughs> Don't hold us to anything. How okay. are you? Good, good. We've got an amazing guest coming up. But before we get to our guests, Church News, what's the latest? What's happening? What is the latest? Well, we're kicking off our series, Reading Romans Backwards, which is really exciting. We're not actually going to literally read it backwards, but we're going to start at the back of the book, work our way forward. And I think the benefit of this is you get to examine who the letter was written to as you then unpack the theology behind the letter. So uh, we're taking a cue out of Scott McKnight's playbook, and yeah, we'll see how it goes. I know you must be really excited. More excited than the meeting that's on the way. <laughs> yeah, we got a meeting coming up. Uh, so yeah, it is a budget meeting. It is important, and and I do we do joke about it, but uh, we really want people to be on board with trying to understand the vision and the direction that we're going, and yeah, what we think, um, you know, what the plans are, and how we're going to use the resources God's given us to help fund ministry. So. Uh, it's a very interesting time, and I do invite people to be praying about a lot of the decisions that need to be made around this time of year. And I guess if I could just put out a plea, it would just be that people be engaged. We want people to be engaged. This is a time to give your input. Don't sit back on the side and say, oh, they don't care what I think. Let somebody else figure it out. No, that's not true. We want to hear what you think. We want to hear how you are engaging and what you think God's put on your heart. Uh, for the direction we need to move as a fellowship. So, uh, but yeah, that's coming up at the end of the month on the 28th of May is our budget meeting. And then a few days after that, I go under the knife. Wow. Two knees gone. Two, two knees gone. Two, two new knees coming. Robo pastor. And how long, how long does that take to kind of recover and stuff? That seems like a big deal. Yeah, it's going to be this quarter at Windsor. <laughs> so it's probably going to be <laughs> next next year. <laughs> next year at WDC. Uh, now we'll live from the hospital bed. <laughs> Looks like Bill's got the bedpan out again. Anyway, we digress. Uh, um, but yeah, it's it's going to be about six weeks. And yeah, uh, recovery kind of minimum. I'm looking to book a stay in a rehab hospital, which is weird because it sounds like you're going on a long holiday. But I'm just, you know, imagining very powerful nurses saying, get up, it's time. Yep. You know, <laughs> do your, <laughs> we need to exercise. When, when, would, when do they expect you would first be walking after surgery? What's the, what's the time there? Well, I know I'm not supposed to get out of the hospital where they do the surgery until five days later, which tells me something. And from there, I'm looking to go to a rehab hospital. Uh, so if from rehab hospital, I think the stays there very, you know, two, three, hopefully not four weeks. That would be crazy. But the silver lining in all this is my mom's coming out. Oh, cool. You could do the show with her. Yep. Is she a good podcast host? I don't know. <laughs> I'm not going to comment. You can't talk about your mom. <laughs> That's a mistake. <laughs> No, but she's she's lovely, and we're uh, yeah we're very excited to have her out, and uh, yeah grateful for uh, yeah, my dad and sister letting her come out for th for the duration. So she'll be out for about three weeks, and hopefully I'll I'll you know I'll see her a little bit before and a little bit after. So yeah, for, for folks wanting to pray for you, what's the date of the surgery? Fifth of June. Cool, cool. Yep. All right. Well, yep. let's get on to our guest for this week, and we have taken the level of prestigious up to max. <laughs> I don't. Even, I'm not even entirely sure how this happened. All the way up, all the way up, are nothing but the best. Was it Mariah that organised this? 
Well, Mariah, Mariah organized it. I forget who kind of put me on to our next guest, but it was it was a no-brainer once I started digging. I was like, we got to do this. Yes, our guest this week is Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker. She's an author, and she's just about to start as Associate Professor of History and Western Civilization at Australian Catholic University. Good afternoon, Dr. Sarah. Hi, Arden. Nice to meet you. Good to see you, Sarah. Thanks for coming on. Appreciate it. Now, I suppose, why don't we go in first, just a little bit of your academic background, and then maybe we'll pick up your faith journey and how you came to Christ. Yeah, that sounds great. Tell us, tell us what you do, what you study, yeah, okay. where are you, what are you, you're a professor. We don't have a professor on here every day, so <laughs> we're sort of like, what was that again? No, but tell us, um, yeah, what's, what's your area of interest, what's your area of expertise, and yeah, I heard you're starting a new job. Yeah, yeah, I am. So I'm a historian, um, and I'm basically a historian of ideas. So what that means is that I'm interested in studying the kind of the big ideas, particularly in the history of Christianity and the history of Western thought. So ideas about like freedom and the history of rights and so forth. So I am about to begin, like you guys said earlier, as an associate professor of history and Western civilization at ACU. Um, and that's, that's really exciting. I've always wanted to be a historian. And this is kind of, in some ways, an interesting kind of part of my faith story because I didn't grow up at all in a Christian family um, I grew up in a really loving family here in Sydney, really secular, mm. um, loving family who always encouraged me to delve into ideas and wrestle with the big questions in life. But actually, I became a Christian in my mid-twenties, wow. having actually thought of myself quite explicitly for some years before that, you know, in those the kind of classic teen years and early twenties as an atheist, mm. which is kind of a really interesting situation, I think, because... For most people, the idea that somebody would come to Christianity from having been an atheist, particularly at a time in their life, for me in my 20s, when actually I had everything that I'd sort of hoped and, and mm. dreamed of, is quite an anomaly. It upsets some of the kind of mis upsets some of the kind of assumptions we make about people who come to Christianity. Mm. Um, yeah, so basically my faith story is one of coming to Christianity from a position of atheism. Um, and basically growing up, I didn't really see why I needed a God. I thought I had a good sense of my identity and who I was and what life was all about. Um, and for me, I was one of those people for whom life was all about academic achievement. That's effectively how I kind of um, conceived of my self-worth. And in many ways, that was very much a success story, a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. I did enormously well um, at school and at university, winning all kinds of prizes and so forth. Um, and then I won a scholarship to undertake a PhD at the University of Cambridge, which was a dream I'd had since I was nine years old. And so when I went to go and study my PhD, I actually arrived at Cambridge as an atheist. Hmm. Um, and in many ways, the college that I became a part of in Cambridge, King's College, was known for its kind of secular theology. I had a couple of friends who were Christians, which I, which was very strange for me, actually. Um, I think the first time in my life that I'd, I'd ever met a Christian and, and become friends with them. But most of my friends were not Christians. Um, and so being at Cambridge started to, that was a moment in which there was a kind of pebble in my shoe as it were I started to kind of have to really consider what it meant that I thought that the universe existed with no God and one of the things that actually happened is that I started to engage with 
my doctoral studies, which interestingly enough, um, and this makes you smile now looking back on it, were exploring the relationship between the history of the British Empire, ideas about empire and science. And I was really interested in the idea of Genesis 126 to 128, um, which is the idea that in the beginning God gave humanity all of the earth and that they were commanded to have dominion over the fishes of the sea and the bowels of the air and all the, thing, all the things that crept upon the earth. And in the 17th century, I was starting to kind of unpack this idea and how it related to the context of British colonialism, which is really fascinating. But what it meant that I did was that I had to study and engage with some of the earliest scientists. We call them scientists now, but in the 17th century, they're really known as natural philosophers. So these people like Francis Bacon... Um, and even more famously, Sir Robert Boyle, who's really one of the founders of modern chemistry. And one of the fascinating things is that they took their faith seriously. And at first, I kind of dismissed their references. I mean, gosh, in Boyle's work and in Bacon's work, for example, they talk, even Isaac Newton too, they speak as much about theology as they do about the natural world because those two things were not in conflict for them. And so I began to actually grapple with the fact that Actually, not only were religion and science not in conflict, at least at the origins of modern science, but actually that one could be a deeply thoughtful Christian and engage robustly with the study of the natural world and hold a deep Christian faith. And I'd never come across that before. After I finished my PhD at Cambridge, um, I held a junior research fellowship at Oxford University. So again, I'm in these these wonderful, you know, elite, world class universities, and one day. Uh, so there's a famous atheist philosopher called Peter Singer, mm. uh, also Australian actually. But anyway, I was really excited. My friends and I heard that Peter Singer was coming to give a series of lectures on ethics. And so I went along to these lectures. And as an atheist, I expected to um, just have my atheism kind of um, edified and, mm. and affirmed and, and leave those lectures feeling fairly good. But actually what happened was that Singer was speaking about Human ethics, of course, which is his field, but in but specifically about the idea of human life and human value. To cut a long story short, I left those those lectures actually as if the carpet had been pulled from underneath me with a kind of what I've called a kind of intellectual vertigo in the sense that what was really made clear to me was that the basic assumptions I had about human life, which were that it was inherently valuable and moreover that every human being was of equal moral worth, it was very clear, and in fact, Singer says this explicitly, and I went and read various books of his, where he does say it explicitly. He says, no, this is actually a Christian myth. Um, actually, an atheist view of human life, in which we are just animals, albeit very advanced ones, means that life, human life is of no inherent value. Um, we're just kind of advanced, highly sophisticated animals. So he comes up with a series of criteria for understanding, well, how can we think about human life as valuable? But at the heart of it, it revealed the fact that atheism couldn't sustain my deepest moral intuition, which was that actually, no, regardless of whether we are weak or strong or young or old or, um, or sick or disabled or healthy, every human life is of infinite worth. And I realized, hold on a minute, atheism can't sustain this. So you describe that as a bit of intellectual vertigo when you were walking in thinking that it was going to your atheism was going to be edified. Um, I wonder if you can can maybe just take us back a little bit. Um, you described yourself growing up a nice family in Sydney. Uh, you, you look back 
on what you describe now as atheism. Was that a conscious sort of choice for you? Was it, did it feel like something that was kind of passed on? Was it an assumption about the world that you had it? We talked to a lot of people who come up in Christian homes and their the values and the sort of the, the way the universe is put together for them is often with an assumed God behind it. But I wonder for you, what was that experience? Was it a conscious sort of atheism that you had or was it something that you look back and said, oh, that, that was atheism? Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question. I think in some ways the culture of Sydney during that period and even, and even today is a, very, is a very secular culture. So this is the really interesting phenomenon, I think, about contemporary culture in, in the West, um, which is that we have imbibed and accommodated so many Christian values and yet deprived them of their Christian underpinnings. So what I mean by that is I grew up kind of assuming that, like I mentioned before, every that human beings and that human life is equally is infinitely kind of precious and valuable. But um, another example for is that the rich and the powerful ought to care for the weak and the needy. And I think it's entirely possible to grow up in a secular society which has been so shaped historically by Christianity to imbibe those values but not actually to recognise their Christian underpinnings. So that, I think, is, a, is the answer to your question um, in the sense that that my kind of formation was such that it was highly intellectual but not particularly religious or theological. So one can have um, a very kind of strong political commitment and, and deep thought about issues of social justice, but just to kind of assume that these come through, and they have indeed been secularised in the past couple of hundred years, but just to kind of assume that we can engage with these without engaging with the deeply biblical theology about a God who loves and cares for the weak as well as the strong um, that underpins them all. I like um, how you mention intellect because the, I guess the age-old argument has been that, that these are two polarising things. So it's always been faith versus science um, and religion versus intellect. And, and the two, you know, the argument has been that the two will never meet. But for you, they, they ran concurrently. Yet that's something that I managed to, well, or something that was kind of, that I was compelled to wrestle with, actually. Yeah. I remember, too, that one of the first passages from the Bible that really struck me when I eventually um, overcame all kinds of narrow-mindedness, to be honest, and opened the Bible for the first time, was the story in Genesis about Jacob wrestling with God. And I remember being told... Um, to read that story and to think about the fact that, no, Jacob is is wrestling with God and this wrestle with God and wrestle with faith is actually part of, of that relationship with God in the first place. And I found that enormously, not only kind of comforting, but actually profoundly enlightening in the sense that it seemed to get to the heart of what it is to be human, right, to wrestle with the truth. And here's Jacob, who after that massive wrestling match with God is called Israel, who wrestles with God himself, his creator, and then is given this new name, this new identity of Israel. So you're you're in that situation. And I love the... Um, uh, um, I love that allusion to Jacob. It's it's uh, such a powerful, such a powerful image. Um, was there, I'm wondering, was there a moment for you, you said you, you left that uh, lecture with Singer and you felt that intellectual vertigo. Was there something that prompted you positively towards 
Christ? Was there a conversation? Was there a moment? How did you process that when you transitioned from not just thinking there here's a religion, but actually maybe there's a being behind this? And when did you start to engage that being? Yes. When did it become personal and not just intellectual, as it were? Yeah. Um, well, okay, a couple of things. When I so soon after I was at Oxford, I moved to America. Good choice, by the way. Yeah, very good. <laughs> <laughs> a new friend of mine gave me uh, C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. And I think that was the book that I read for the first time and really engaged with on a personal level and really thought about these issues of, well, can there be a God? And could I stand before that? And I, yeah, oh gosh, you know what? And I remember at the same time I was preparing. Uh, this is the funny thing about how God works in our <laughs> lives, right? But I was preparing to give lectures that very semester as I was reading this book on Martin Luther and the mm. Reformation and undergoing something of a of a, of a conversion of to Christianity of my own. Um, but I remember wrestling with what C.S. Lewis was saying and what I was trying to understand that Martin Luther was saying, which is how can somebody who is so sinful and fallen stand before a holy and perfect God. So I think that was that was one big thing that I that made me kind of think about this on a very personal level. But the other was that um, finally I, I walked into church for the first time um, by myself because I was living in this this city, Tallahassee, um, where I didn't really know many people when I when yeah, this time after I'd moved there. And so I finally decided to go to church by myself on a Sunday morning and I walked into a church and I remember that Sunday morning in downtown Tallahassee, um, it's, a, it's the kind of the political, it's a very small city, um, but it's the political administrative capital of Florida. And But yet Sunday morning, it's just everything is dead and quiet downtown. And I remember walking alone through those kind of cobblestone streets and I remember the Spanish moss, which was kind of... Um, dripping from the oak trees. And then I walked through the door of the church and suddenly all of that seemed to fall away because the church I walked into was incredibly beautiful and and holy. Now, I know it might sound funny for a Protestant to use those words, but actually I think that something happened there because as I walked into this church and sat through the service, and they celebrated the Lord's Supper that morning. But I'd never been baptised, so I didn't go up and receive the Lord's Supper or anything. But I, would, I just sat back in the pews and watched. And as the choir sang and as I experienced what it was like to be in church, it was, I think for me, it's this, um, T.S. Eliot has this, has this line in one of his poems, The Still Point in the Turning World. This was a moment in which I understood God, not just as intellectual, but actually as the origin and the foundation of beauty and sacredness. And they're concepts that I'd never really thought about. And I'd and the idea that God that that actually that beauty itself and that sacredness could point me to the idea that there is a God who is the foundation of all that beauty and all that sacredness and yet who became fully human. And this is what I learned when they celebrated the Lord's Supper. And when I heard these words, which to me were so I mean, it's so bizarre, so strange to a non-Christian, right, to hear this is my body broken for you and this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. This is a God who is at the origin of all that, of all beauty and holiness, and which we in so many ways can't fathom. And yet here he is made flesh in Christ 
and dying for us. And to be honest, I think that was that was the moment at which, perhaps for me, that was the moment in which there was no turning back in which I knew that God was real and I stood before him as a sinner and what, what was I going to do about this? It's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that with us. As, as an academic, as an author, I assume prolific researcher, was there part of you that needed to, to sort of go back and check evidence? You know, you, you've, you've spent your life kind of um, looking at history and looking at evidence and, and proof and research. Was there, was there part of you that said, you know, I need to go and, and make sure this stuff is factually evident and real and true? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. For me, that, that question is something that I explored a few years into my faith. Um, and then I managed to read about and actually probably in the context of people asking me this very same kind of question and me wrestling with it and having undergraduate students and so forth wrestling with the historicity of you know did did Jesus live um and so yeah I've I've since gone back and read because I'm not a historian of the ancient world of the first century Greco-Roman world first century Palestine um but I've since gone back and read about that period and actually um what I have read has been enormously, enormously edifying in the sense that there is, I mean, even I think one really good thing that um, kind of sums this up is that, look, there is no, uh, and this is a this is a really excellent point that John Dixon makes, there's no full professor of any of the related fields of classics or ancient history or um, anything like that in the world who denies that that Jesus of Nazareth was a real historical person. So then effectively it becomes, okay, this, this man clearly lived, what do we do with the evidence? Um, and even just standing back for a moment and thinking about how I've reflected upon this since as a historian, one of the most, there are so many remarkable things. I mean, not least, for example, one of, my, one of the things that strikes me most when I read the Gospels today is that is the women being there at the empty tomb, the fact that women are giving this account of, of the empty tomb. You see, in the first century, women were not, understood to be credible witnesses in Jewish law courts. Um, and so the fact that the, that the gospel writers credit this story about an empty tomb to a bunch of women, there's no reason that you would even put them in, put that in mm. if you're making it up. So as a historian, this is just one of the things that you do when you approach evidence. You say, well, hold on, what are the kind of things that, that one would include and not include if this source um, were made up? So that's really good. But that's one of the kind of best things to... That I, that I find strikes me today when I read the Gospels. But I think the other thing is uh, the sheer kind of growth of the early church, the fact that look, there, were other, there were other people who pretended to be the Messiah, but their names are lost to us. Yep. And there is no growth. There are no people. There are not hundreds of people who are persecuted and then die for this belief, um, having claimed to have seen them risen from the dead in the early centuries. So the fact that the church can grow historically is I think one of the one of the actually the biggest miracles I'm so glad to hear you say that I try to tell that to people all the time I said you know one of the if you're a Christian you're talking to somebody who's asking you to justify your belief historically sometimes it's just a good to ask them back how do you account for the existence of the church mm. this was not a yeah. religion of powerful people this was a religion of uh, people who who were on the margins in, in many cases I love that point um, 
I want to know a little bit about what you're up to now. You you came in and you told us today. Uh, I said, "What you up to?" You said, oh, "I just wrote a conclusion." Oh, I said, yeah. "Oh, that's exciting." Yeah. Uh, so, what were you working on today? Can you tell us a bit about that project? Yeah, thank you. So, um, I've just finished a book, actually for a general audience, which is something that um, academics don't have the the blessing of doing that often um, of writing a book, not just for scholars, but actually to be picked up by people um, in the general public. And so that's what I finished doing. I uh, have just finished writing the conclusion for a book that's um, coming out next year. Um, and it's called Priests of History, Engaging with the Past in an Ahistoric Age. And in a nutshell, what it's all about is the fact that in our culture today, I think that we are now so fundamentally disconnected from our past. We see it with such irrelevant, we see it as basically irrelevant or we're largely ignorant of the past, um, or when we do engage with the past, I mean, you just look at the kinds of contentious ideological debates around the world, it's kind of reduced to all its complexity and nuance are, uh, are taken away and it's reduced to a kind of ideological battleground. And I think now we kind of live in this age where we are so disconnected and rootless that it's an ahistoric age. So the book is basically setting out this kind of critique of our culture today, which says, hey, we, we live in this kind of ahistorical age now. Um, and then the question is, well, as Christians, what do we do about that? Because actually, biblically, God God says that history is really important. I mean, gosh, we have a God who acts in history, whose plan for salvation is carried out in history, who in the person of Jesus becomes a historical person and who teaches us to learn from that story and to learn from our past. So the book is then saying, how can Christians engage with history well? How can we draw upon our past? Um, and my suggestion is that we are, we're a kind of priesthood of all believers, Christians, to paraphrase Martin Luther, who's drawing on the set second peter there but this idea that if we if we treat the past as kind of priestly work in the sense that we tend and we keep it we care for it and we cultivate it then i think that actually we can use history and use the past in a way that can be enormously enriching i think it's going to enrich us spiritually um intellectually and it's also i think going to equip us to engage with our culture and speak the gospel into this rootless and confused and disconnected world what would you say to somebody who hears the word history and they immediately think of, oh, I hated that class in high school, and they their eyes glaze over, and the just the thought of the word history makes them think of boring textbook. What would you say to, to spark kind of curiosity and excitement in, in someone who maybe had that experience? Yeah, gosh. Well, I mean, I think one one way of approaching that is to say that I'm not sure that we can understand anything that we that actually kind of defines the way that we live today and shapes the very world that we live in unless we understand it historically. So for example, when somebody says if somebody were to say that kind of thing to me, I'd probably get them to think about some of the things that they that kind of take for granted in Australia or some of the things that they think about and care about whether it's um the kind of you know, sort of the, the various freedoms that we have in Australia, for example, or the idea that we are people who are individuals with certain rights that we have. All of those exist purely because of a history. And if we understand that history, we can actually understand something so much deeper about our world today. Given your, I suppose, your background while you were young, your, your atheist background, and then the transformation that occurred in your life, 
and I'm sure you've had plenty of opportunities to do this, how would you convince atheists of a God, of a loving God, of the of the, the transformation that's happened in your life? Yeah. You know, I'm not sure that, you know, even the question is, is a difficult one because I don't think that that you can just be kind of rationally persuaded that there is a a loving God purely because to be created in God's image and to know him and to love him is going to require God doing something in us because we're so fallen. It's going to require the Holy Spirit working in us. That's the kind of theological explanation of that. But actually the kind of the human explanation of this is that to know God and to love him is not just a matter of the intellect. It's a matter of of our hearts. And so even there are all kinds of, you know, things that you could you can say, you know, I would I think stories are effective. I can I can tell my story. But I think one of the most powerful things is to to engage with somebody about about what they think the sort of the big questions are and to try to to try to kind of show that that if there's any kind of if we hope for anything ultimately meaningful, anything anything that tells us that human life is more than an accident of culture and biology, anything that gives us any kind of hope, then at heart we're talking about a God who loves us. And, yeah, so I don't think it's just a matter of rational persuasion, but I think there are ways to have really helpful conversations in which we can tell, we can talk about, we can tell our own story, but then we can also kind of, and of of course, tell stories that that Jesus told. And I think this is one of the reasons why Jesus did speak in parables so Mm. many in so many ways because it is all about trying to commu- to communicate a truth through a story but i think at heart it is a matter of of the heart learning that what we desire and what we're kind of restless for to quote um, this is to kind of paraphrase saint augustine perhaps you'd say that well this isn't this a kind of a true statement about who we are that we're kind of ultimately really restless and searching for meaning and hope but our hearts are restless until they find their hope in God. Our vision here is to see all people transformed uh, by God's word and spirit for faith in Christ. What if you can talk to us now, sort of maybe stepping into the balcony, looking over your life? What would you say, looking back, was the the biggest transformation that took place in you on, on a practical level? I mean, you, you know yourself. You you know what what you were you know Sarah before you know Sarah Sarah now, and none of us is is perfect, obviously, but if if we were to meet you before you met Christ, what do you think is a big difference we would see? Gosh, okay, so that's a really personal You don't have to question. answer if you don't want to. Um, I was somebody for whom life was all about self-fulfillment, I think, and that really resonates with our culture today. Before I became a Christian, life was very much about just kind of achieving my my particular goals in life. So it's a very self-centered life. And like all people, even even as a Christian, of course, we are still sinners. But one of the transformations I think that has happened when I look back on my life is that I am no longer somebody for whom the horizons of my life are fundamentally about myself. And God, through his mercy, has shown me that picture of God and his kingdom, a God who has kind of loved and come after the lost, 
the greatest of whom in many ways was me because I was somebody who was self-righteously contemptuous of Christians and of God. But God's mercy in, sh- in, in coming after me and, and showing me that truth has meant that one of those transformations has been try yeah has been God gently helping me lovingly mercifully helping me become somebody who can who can live into this truth that that to live for Christ is is to try to deny oneself and and follow him by serving others and so now my world is not fundamentally a world about myself it's a world that it, and it's a life that is shaped with by the truth of God made flesh in the Lord Jesus and what he is doing in this world, which is making it new through Christ and therefore seeing my life as, in some small way, God using me for his own purposes. I just have some rapid fire stuff. So do you have one more serious question? or uh, No, I think I'm good. What I might do, if you don't mind, Sarah, just because so many people might not know you, and and I think there's a natural, uh, you know, we hear someone who's really smart, and we hear someone who's articulate like you are, we tend to think, oh, wow, yeah, there's sort of this other person out there. So, but it's all right with you, I might ask you some rapid fire questions just to sort of bring us, bring us back to the same level. Um, <laughs> Add a human element to Dr. Sarah. <laughs> I feel like I've been all too human. Um, <laughs> so here you go. You, you, and again, just feel free to say pass if you don't want to answer any of these. We won't get too personal. Um, all right. What's your favorite thing to do on a Saturday morning? Eat, <laughs> eat breakfast with my family. All right. Eat Who is your, who's a part of your family? Okay, so I'm married to John and we have three kids. Okay. Uh, Maddie, Desi, and James. Okay. Is, and they're you, they're all awake and on time and everything. And <laughs> they are all awake, um, and you know, getting we all sit down and have breakfast together. Usually, there's a podcast playing, yeah, and so that's a that's a really lovely time of the week. Yep. Yep. If you have some screen time and you just want to veg out, what's your go to? I really try not to do that. That's okay. Um, I li- yeah, I don't. I limit my social media to like one minute a day so that I don't have I don't have Instagram. I try not to do that. Yeah. Guilty Netflix pleasure? No, no, I don't. Oh, no, sorry. This is, this is really not helping the <laughs> what we're trying to do here because I was about to say I really dislike movie and TVs. But, okay. um, yeah, let's see. I like wandering around in our backyard. So we have 12 chickens. This is kind of random and eccentric. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have 12 chickens, all named after famous uh, women, of course, because their hens have to be female, um, either in church history. Oh, no, wait, this is going nerdy again. Um, <laughs> or great literary women, so like various Jane Austen characters. Um, and so, you know, it, like if I need a break mentally, I'll either go for a jog. Yeah. So, yeah, um, that's good. And or I will kind of just wander around the backyard um, with the chickens, communing with the chickens <laughs> um, <laughs> and, the, and the kids. Yeah. Love it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so let's go books. Uh, if you if you want to read for fun, you want to read for just your own pleasure. What what do you pick up? Oh well, <clears throat> at the moment um, I'm reading. So there's oh you know this Jonathan um, Wendell Berry, the American Ooh. author. Mm-hmm. Um, he has a wonderful uh, series of short stories called That Distant Land. Mm. And they are a beautiful series of, yeah, of short stories. And so that's what I'm reading at the moment. That's cool. Where did you get your shiny new boots? 
they were ordered online so that I could avoid going shopping because I don't really <laughs> want to go into a, into a shopping centre. Yep. Yep. Excellent. Sweet or savoury? Uh, savoury. Savoury, particularly if it involves bread or carbohydrates of some form. I'm with you there. Yep. Okay, maybe, maybe last one, last one. And you're, you've been very gracious with us. Thank you for sharing so openly with us about your life. Um, she instantly regrets it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, it's just shown through a mirror what a nerd I am, so I probably should have realised that earlier. That's all right. We're very nerdy. <laughs> um, uh, so last question. I wonder if, and this is a little more serious level, but also, also personal level. Yeah. What do you think is something that, well... I'll frame it this way. There's been a lot of discussion about how it's difficult to be a Christian woman uh, at this sort of in these times. Um, you may or may not agree with that. Um, but how, what advice would you give to, uh, to Christian women about um, life, uh, life in the body and, and kind of how to navigate the gifts and talents that, that maybe God has given you uh, in that space? Wow, that's a really, thank you, that's a really good question. The thing that very quickly comes to mind actually is, I mean, apart from all the, the kind of the obvious things about like do not neglect your faith, you have a God who has put women at the heart of you know, seeing the empty tomb and going to tell the other disciples. Do not neglect your faith or think for some reason that, that God does not have a love or, or an important um, role for you in whatever it may be in life. But the other thing, the other kind of more practical thing actually, which I've really been thinking about lately is to try to connect with other women, um, particularly if you're a young woman listening to this, women older than you. Heck, send me an email. Um, I'm trying to do this in a very, yeah, I'm trying to, trying to really live my faith here. I want to actually really reach out to other women and connect women with women and there are some wonderful things that are happening in that kind of space um, in the church in Australia and elsewhere but yeah try to reach out to other women because that kind of fellowship and that connection whether it's going to conferences um, or yeah reading books um, together and that kind of mentoring that can happen I think is incredibly important and it's not something that for various reasons women automatically do. Highlight. I had one more. You spoke at KCC recently. Yes. What was a highlight for you speaking at uh, the Easter Convention? Oh gosh, I think just so. On Sunday morning was I gave two talks, and the one that I gave on Sunday morning was my testimony, and I think just being there on Easter Sunday with whatever it was, like two thousand other Christians, was the highlight because just being able to be surrounded by that many people who are trying to who are you know who know that they are loved by God and trying to follow him it was just so um encouraging cool you got one more that was me throwing it to you <laughs> you dropped it you didn't I dropped it. the ball <laughs> no I think I think we're good do you just want to say anything about how do people people want to contact you or yeah. do you want to leave that details with me what's yeah yes yeah, so my feel free to send me an email um Sarah at stonebreaker.com.au. And I have a website and yes, I am trying to connect and build up young women in the church or women generally. Yep. That's fantastic. Awesome. Thank, All right. 
Dr. Sarah Irving Stonebreaker, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much. So good to have you. Thank you. Well, I think that's probably the most prestigious guest we've actually had here on our tiny little This Week at WDBC podcast. Maybe the most qualified. That was was quite (laughs) quite impressive. Uh, You know, I almost said, you can't call me Dr. J when there's another doctor. (laughs) Like, this is not right. (laughs) An actual doctor. (laughs) An actual PhD person here. But I don't, we didn't tell her, so, (laughs) oops. No, Uh, no, it was, it was great to hear from Sarah. I really appreciated the, the openness about her story. And as, as that interview went on, we got to hear uh, just the personal engagement. For me that, you know, you asked a fantastic question, Arden, about what is it like what would you say to someone who's not an atheist? And her answer of, you know, I don't think you can rationally persuade somebody to faith because it's not just a matter of your rationality or your intellect. It's a matter of the heart, and that's where God really has to do his work. Um, but I hope people were listening to, you know, to what she was saying about the value of human life and, um, you know, people like Peter Singer who, you know, I think if you are an atheist, you have to take the logic of his his argument very seriously. Where do you find meaning in life? Where do you find purpose and, and, you know, things like, you know, unalienable, unalienable human rights, you know, why do they exist if, if there is no creator and we are just animals? And so, um, yeah, I hope people can maybe listen again to some things Sarah said, check out our website. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, take up the opportunity to get in touch with her. Yeah, she was very open and honest about wanting people to get in touch. So especially especially women of faith, I think she that's someone she really wants to connect with. Pure gold. All right, well, that's it for another week. Thanks for coming along for the ride once again. Another very successful show. Keep stacking them up. <laughs> <laughs>